talking about fire and the spirit. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verses 11 and 12. The Apostle Paul writes this. He says, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. We have so much to be thankful for. So much that God does for us. Father, we do praise you and thank you because you are so good to us. And I am sure, Lord, that every one of us is blessed day after day. And we could have hundreds of testimonies. But, but Father, these little testimonies that were shared this morning, they are encouraging to me. They're encouraging to us. And, and Lord, we give the, get the opportunity to pray with one another and lift one another up. And Lord, strengthen each other in this time of prayer. Father, we also know that there are others who are struggling. And, and, and I understand uh, that there are those who, whose aging days are troublesome physically. But Lord, we also know that they know you and love you. And that this earthly place is not the destiny, but the destiny is in your presence. And so, Father, we lift up those who struggle physically. We lift up our families where there's family struggles. We lift up those, Lord, who are, are having a difficult time, even financially. Father, we ask for your blessing and the outpouring of your spirit upon each one of them and an assurance that you are still in control that you know what's going on in each person's life and that your will will be done and that our hope and our dependency is upon you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Isn't it wonderful to, to share and to pray with one another? To me, that's a real encouragement. As Sherry mentioned, uh, that's what happens at our transitional uh, pastors network is a is a group of guys who who spend half the day praying for each other sharing and praying for each other and what an encouragement that is last few weeks we've been focused on centering our life around Jesus and this morning I've entitled the message Jesus in my everything Jesus in my everything Lord, indeed, as we come this morning to hear from you, may our hearts be in you and may you be in us. And Lord, may you minister to us that our lives may center around you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want to start with a passage in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. If you have your Bible and you want to follow uh, along, It's just a short little passage, uh, just a few words that I want to share of this passage, but I think that they are profound words. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, the Apostle Paul makes this statement. He says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But what I really want to focus on is to live is Christ. To live 
is Christ. Jesus is the author of life. Jesus is the, the creator of everything that has been made, everything that's in existence. He is both judge and he is savior. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is Lord of everything. Now that should take a prominent position, right? I mean, someone of Jesus' stature should be a part of our lives. And there's no one who is more excellent and more praiseworthy than Jesus himself. The psalmist says in chapter 22, verses 6 and 7, he says this, he says, He alone, and he's talking about God, and includes the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. He says, He alone is my rock, my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. He alone is my rock and my salvation. My salvation and my honor depend on God. My salvation and my honor depend on God. There's a story that I want to share. It's just a short story. But it focuses upon who we center our lives around. And the story goes like this. It's a story shared by Phil Ware. And he writes, on the way home from church, Josh's dad wanted to know what his preschool Sunday, preschool's son's Sunday school teacher taught in class. You see, Josh, Josh's dad had this special interest because he wasn't just uh, taking a fatherly concern. He was also on the staff at the church. And so he asked his son about Sunday school. And so Josh folded his arms across his chest and with a stern look, he said, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. That's all they want to talk about in my class is Jesus. Of course, it was clear that Josh wanted a little bit more extracurricular activity, a greater assortment of acti activity in a Sunday school. But the teacher had found the true heart of the matter. It was Jesus. The true heart of the matter. The reason for Sunday school. Jesus. Jesus is the center. And we find as we, we study the Bible, the Bible's a library of all kinds of inspired writings. Poetry, prophecy, hymns, psalms, oracles, narratives, sermons, letters, parables, proverbs, even legalities are found in Scripture. But for each of you, each of us, all of us who follow the Lord Jesus Christ, the focus has to be centered upon Jesus. Jesus is at the center of all of Scripture. And the Bible is relevant, is inspiring, and it is important. The Bible itself speaks for itself. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, 
Scripture says, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. However, the story of Jesus is the lens through which all of the Bible comes into the focus. Someone once said it in this way. They said Jesus is the tuning fork that brings every heart into harmony with God and his purpose for our lives. I kind of like that. He is the tuning fork. When we look away from God, when our own concerns and our own attention is on others or other things, when it, it's sort of like when we strike the wrong chords or when we're off key when we're singing. We all know what it's like, right? People run away from us because it sounds terrible. And, and really that's, Jesus is the tuning fork that makes us the kind of people that are attractive. He brings us into the right tone. He allows us to become beautiful. And when we're off tune, we're not very beautiful at all. If we really want to know and are willing to admit it, we recognize that the decline of our churches is not a disinterest in Jesus. People are very interested in Jesus. The decline in our churches is not a disinterest in Jesus. It's a disinterested, it's a disinterest in being emerged in a church where a culture is found that they are trying to get away from. And there's reasons for it. Because sometimes our actions are not very attractable. While I was going to school, in the summer I worked at a place called Agrium. It's a fertilizer plant southeast of Calgary. And as I came into that place, and I'm, I'm not sure, I think it was the very first year that I worked there. As we came into the lunch trailer, of course, there's all kinds of conversation. We're in a very close-knit place. And there was a fellow there who was not shy about sharing the very fact that he's a Christian. He was not shy about the fact that he attends church. But he was also not shy to tell everybody about everything that he knew. And he knew everything. And he had experience in every kind of work that you could possibly think of. And it only took a day or two before I heard the murmuring of those in the, tent of the, in the lunch trailer that he's full of it. In fact, it seemed like he didn't know anything. And I can tell you that I did not say a single word about who I am or being a part of the Christian faith because to me it was a disgrace. I don't know if he lasted the week. They ran him off the job. A professing Christian who 
who was self-centered. The damage, the damage was unbelievable. It wasn't until after he was off the job that I started sharing, but not openly. When people asked, I shared. And they also said, you're not like him. I said, no, I don't want to be like him at all. Sometimes the hardest thing is not only to look at oneself, but it, to admit to oneself that you are self-destructing your life. Not only are you self-destructing your life, you are also ruining the relationship you have with others and the testimony of Christ. People flock to the Lord Jesus not because Jesus was sinless, not because Jesus was a perfect person, but they flocked to Jesus because Jesus loved and Jesus cared about people. Nothing that Jesus did was about him. It was about either his father first and foremost, and then it was about the people that he ministered to. Was Jesus opposed? He was greatly opposed. All Jesus wanted to do was invest himself in the lives of the people that were around him. Yet he was opposed. He wasn't put to death on the cross for giving life to people and caring for people. He wasn't put on the cross because he fulfilled the very needs that people had. But he was put to death on the cross because he revealed he revealed the sinful and selfish nature of man. His life revealed what people were like inside. And they would not consider their own sin. They saw their sin, but they didn't want to deal with it. And the way not to deal with your sin was to put Jesus on the cross. You put that out of the way. The early church had a testimony that was like the Lord Jesus. They too loved God first and foremost. And they too loved people. Their mission was the people they were ministering to. The center of their life was Jesus. And in that circle was the people that they met together with. They invested in people's lives for the kingdom of God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, Peter writes this. He says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. And he says this, he says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Peter is saying, live such good lives. How do you live a good life? Invest yourself in people. Invest yourself in your neighbors. Invest yourself in the people that 
that are at work or in your community. The whole idea here is that they will be watching you. As you invest yourself in their lives, they're going to be watching you very closely. They're going to want to find some fault in you because they are selfish. But when they see Jesus, as the scripture here says, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Recognizing that there's more than just a person in there. The Spirit of God is in there as well. If you have an idea that as a Christian you're going to live this wonderful life and you will be blessed in every way, you will be surprised because a Christian life is not easy street. Jesus said, count the cost. There is a cost. There's a cost to owning a house. But the benefits pay. There's a cost to loving and making Jesus the center of your life. But there's a benefit that cannot be paid. It is more than what we could ever expect. Jesus made this promise to his disciples and to us. John chapter 16, verse 33. In this world you will have trouble. And then, of course, he says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And if you are in me, you are also overcoming the world. Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 and 30. Jesus says this, no one who has left home or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, and with them persecutions in the age to come, eternal life. So in other words, yeah, there's a lot of benefits. There's a lot of blessings in making Christ the center of our lives. But as God took Noah through the flood, he didn't take him out of the flood. Chaos came into this world, but Noah wasn't exempt from it. He was simply taken through the flood. And so Jesus takes us through our troubles and trials in this world. If we center our lives upon him. Living a Christ-centered life does come at a cost. And it is worth self-examination. It is worth being honest to yourself. It is worth it. Sometimes we don't want to be. Sometimes we know things, but we don't want to go there. We want to push it off to the side. Because that means, if, if we look at it, that means we have to deal with it. And we don't want to deal with it. It's also worth asking others. When you get this idea that, you know what, there's something wrong here in my life, ask others. Ask people that you trust. 
Ask them about yourself. Give them permission to be honest with you. And accept their honesty. So that your life may be centered around the Lord Jesus Christ. We started with three of David Campfield's comparisons. And I just want to review them quickly. Uh, we started with the first set of self-centered people. And we said self-centered people absorb the energy of those around them, can talk the talk, can talk the walk, and then, in other words, they can talk the, to talk the walk, but they can't walk the talk. Uh, drive you away. Self-centered people end up driving you away. We noted that these people have these insecurities. They have insecurities and, and, and they see themselves as somehow inadequate and they're looking for some value in their life. And in order to obtain that value, they reach out in these ways in order to gain importance. Christ-centered people, on the other hand, release the energy of God to others. They're not looking for something for themselves. They're looking to give something away. They walk the talk. In other words, they do exactly what they say they are doing. They tend to draw people. They're attractive. People want to be around those folks. We noted that these people were confident in who they are in the Lord Jesus Christ. They didn't need more attention. They lived out exactly what they believed. And they desired for other people to become more important. For others to become more important. Feeding into other people's lives. Then we came to the second set of comparisons. The self-centered people in this set love to be acknowledged by others, shine the light on themselves, find fault in others, love to be served, and want their way or want their own way. And this set of comparisons has to do more with people who have pride in their life. They're proud of who they are. These folks think of themselves as somewhat better than those that are around them. Uh, they, they get into a group and think, well, I'm at the top end of this group. Everyone else kind of needs to come up to my level. Uh, they feel themselves as being more capable than someone else. They're just a level above. On the other hand, the Christ-centered people love to acknowledge Christ. They are a testimony. They are a witness. They shine light on others, not on themselves, but they shine light on other people. Other people are more important. They want to give other people the limelight. Uh, they, find them, they find good in others, and they love to serve others, and they do things God's way instead of their own way. This group centered itself around people in a way that makes them servants. Their purpose is to serve the people around them. They are saying, I'm not it. Jesus is it. And they make their life about others. Now, I found this slide that I thought I'd share with you because it's kind of interesting. And it says, I am thankful for the difficult people in my life. They have shown me exactly who I don't want to be. And isn't that true? 
when you discover difficult people in your life, you look at yourself and you say, I'm not like that, am I? Because if I'm like that, I don't want to be like that. So I, I think it's a very fitting uh, saying. I'm thankful for the difficult people in my life. They have shown me exactly who I don't want to be. Jesus, on the other hand, has shown us exactly who we want to be. And so I want to continue with just three more uh, comparatives uh, from David Campfield. And uh, the next one, if we can go to that slide, it's, it's number nine. There's 11 of them all together. Uh, but uh, the number nine here is self-centered people walk by sight. And, and this is a little different twist to the whole thing because these people want to see something in order to believe it. They will not believe it unless they see it. It is not by faith. Uh, everything that, that happens, they want to see confirmation. They want to see the evidence. If the evidence isn't there, they're not going to believe it. Uh, we have a great example in Scripture with doubting Thomas because Thomas wasn't there when Jesus first appeared. And when the disciples told Thomas about Jesus, they said, we have seen the Lord. He was here. He stood amongst us. He ate with us. Thomas said, I don't believe it. And I won't believe it until I put my hand, my fingers in his hand and my hand in his side. And a little later, we find that Jesus appeared when Thomas was there. And Jesus goes to Thomas and he says, Thomas, Put your finger in, my, in the nail hole of my hand. Put your hand in my side. And, and at that point, Thomas didn't have to do that. He fell down before him and he says, My Lord and my God. But would he have believed if he hadn't seen? That's the question. Christ-centered people, on the other hand, walk by faith. It's not because they've decided, I'm going to close my eyes and I'm, not gonna, I'm just going to believe and I'm not going to look at anything. It's not that. It's not a blind faith, but it's a trust. It's a trust in God. Trusting that everything that you experience from God is from God. That prayer is, is a source of power. That prayer works. They trust in the fact that they have lifted it up to the Lord and have given it to him and that he will work things out in accordance to his will. Uh, Barry Clardy uh, from Princeton Pike Church made this statement. He says, if you wait to see before you see it, you'll never see it. If you wait to see it before you see it, you'll never see it. You have to have a certain amount of trust. You have to believe. If you don't believe, it won't take you anywhere. Next, self-centered people dwell in your basement. Self-centered people dwell in your basement. Uh, these are the kind of people who are constantly tearing everything down. They are the kind of people that 
look at something and start to tear it apart. They speak negatively about anything that happens. Something good could happen, but they find something negative to talk about. It's the kind of people they are. They're always doubting people's abilities and dreams. And they're saying, you can't do it. It doesn't work. These kind of people are really a mixture of people. They are people who, who are too, they have pride because they, 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 they want to tear down it because that makes them look a lot better. They, they, they've risen a level. If they can tear something down, of course, others will depend upon him, them. There are those who tear down because they, they doubt. And there's those who tear down because they have a need in their life. They want the attention. Somehow they want things pointed towards themselves. Christ-centered people, on the other hand, dwell in your balcony, not in your basement. They dwell in your balcony. These are the kind of people that are always encouraging. They're always there encouraging forward, encouraging you do, to do something. They're always there to lift you up in order to help you do better. They don't want to see you do worse. They want to see you maximize your life. They believe in you. And they are really your cheering section. They're the ones who are on the sidelines cheering you on to do better. Sherry had mentioned, and, and, and I didn't say anything earlier because this is at a point where I wanted to talk about our transitional pastors network because that is what happens there. We get in a room of pastors who are in this ministry and they're not there for themselves. And you can see it in how they give to each other. And you can just know that when they get back to their churches, they're pouring out. They're pouring out everything they have in order to enhance the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. In order to see the kingdom work go forward. That's their desire. And they come into this place and they carry that into this room. And every one of us, I believe, receives. Everyone gives and everyone receives. And everyone goes home encouraged. You know, ready to, to dance. I know we both, both of Sherry and I, came out of that place. And you, and you almost want to start running and dancing and doing something, you know. Because it's exciting. Those are the kinds of people that dwell on your, on your balconies. When you get done with them, you can, you can challenge the world. Then lastly, self-centered people seek to please others. Now this is a very important one, especially, I believe, in our churches. They seek to please others. They do things to make people like them. Everybody wants to be liked. Everybody wants to be liked. But these are also the kind of people who will not share their own personal views in case someone doesn't like what they say, in case someone opposes their view. They will hold back so that they are not opposed, so that they will be liked, so that it seems like they are in agreement with everyone else. 
They don't, they don't want to offend anyone. They want to please everyone. They are sort of, and this is my thing, is it's sort of like a politician. A politician wants to please everybody so that they can get the vote. What is it here? Here the whole idea is acceptance. People want to be accepted. They, they have this need in their life to be liked. That's their value. They have value in being a person who is liked. Christ-centered people, on the other hand, don't seek to please people, but seek to please God. They are not people-pleasers. In fact, some people will take a little offense to that because they will stand up and say, this is the direction. This is the way God sees it. This is the way I'm living my life. They follow Jesus' teaching. They know who they are in Christ. And they will not deviate from that. There's no selfish ambition in their objectives. It's all for Jesus. And the other interesting thing is, is that they accept people as they are. They please God. That's their objective. It's not about that person. It's about Christ. If that person is off somewhere, they're not about to go and correct that person. They're about to work with that person to show them who Jesus is. Rick Warren from Saddleback Church says, everyone's life is driven by something. We all have something in our lives that drive us, either to God or to self. Many people allow their needs for approval to control their life. It's not that they're in control. It's their need that's in control. And that comes basically because they either feel guilty about something and that guilt takes control of their life or they have hurts in their life and that tends to take control. They have fears and everything that they do runs around the fears that they have. They operate their life in accordance to the fears that they have. Others, of course, have pride or arrogance or superiority. That drives their life. When we look at all of these 11 self-centered and Christ-centered characteristics, it's a lot to take in. It's a lot to absorb. And you may have found yourself in one or two, or five, or six, or more categories. Hopefully, you are on a journey moving from a self-centered life to a God-centered life. Hopefully, these comparisons have taken you into the reality of your life. 
And God is beginning to move you towards himself. And as we think about things, we also need to ask ourselves some questions. And they're related to who we are. Are we self-centered or are we Christ-centered? We have to ask ourselves honestly, what drives me to be who I am? What drives me to be who I am? And what will drive me to Jesus? What will it take to change, to make that change? What will drive me from myself towards Jesus? You need to ask yourself, what value do I put upon myself? What value do I put upon myself? What value do I put upon my possessions? What value do I put upon what other people think? Because that determines on which, in which camp you're, you're, you're residing. How do you see your values in reality play out against the Christ-centered life? Then there's the question of what will you give? What will you give or what will you give up to move from the self-centered life to the Christ-centered life? Because you do have to give up something. You got to give up all that awful stuff that's holding you back to get something far better. But you know, we get we get into this place where we feel comfortable. I like where I am. I like to get the attention. I like to have people come and take care of my needs. I don't want to be self-dependent. Because I've learned to operate in that way. You're not ready to move the other way. It's a challenge. It's a great challenge. When Sherry and I made our commitment to the Lord and was really wondering and praying. We were both wondering, where's God taking us? I knew because I had been in business with my partner for some time and I just knew it was like God was, had something inside of me that said, I need to put the business aside. And then I came to a place and I said, okay, Lord, I'm going to do it. And it was like, no, wait. I go, wait, what am I waiting for? God says, wait, wait, wait. And I went through months of waiting. Sherry and I went on a little vacation with our family to Eastern Canada. We spent all of our money. We came home. And the very first week I'm back at work, God says, now. I said, now, now after I spent all my money, now you want me to get out of here? Well, we talked about it as a family. We prayed about it as a family. And as a family, we made a decision. We're going to Bible college and we're going to burn our bridges. So we sold our home. We used our equity to go to school. There's no going back. No going back. 
We didn't do it for money. We did it for the Lord. There was no reason for me to go in that direction financially. It was 18 years later before my wage was even equaled, let alone the bonuses that we were paying ourselves. So it wasn't the money. It was what we desired to give to the Lord. And the question for us, for you, is what are you willing to give the Lord? Is the Christian life only about you? Or is a Christ-centered life about much more? Do you desire those who don't know the Lord yet to come into a relationship with him? Is that the desire of your heart? Is that truly the desire? Or are you just satisfied with just knowing the Lord and coming to church on Sunday and and going through your devotional time and, 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 and being part of some church activity? Is that all you want? Or is there something inside of you that says, I pain for that neighbor. I pain for that family member. I pain for that friend. And do you desire to be a part of that work? Do you desire for God to use you? You've got to make yourself available. And if you say, yes, I want, I want to see my neighbor. I want to see my friend. I want to see my, my son, my daughter, my granddaughter. I want to see the people I know come into faith. I want to see the person on the street come into faith. If that's your heart, then will you allow God to change your heart? God's not going to do it just like that. He wants a willing person. He wants somebody willing to do it. If you're not willing, God's going to let you sit in that pew. What does your life need to look like for God to make an, you an influential tool, for you to make an impact. You see, if we're truly saved, the Holy Spirit is living inside of us. He's there. And he will compel you to make those changes. He won't force you but he will ask you. He will ask you to become more Christ-centered. Jimmy Humphrey said this. He said, don't make Christ the first in anything. But he says, make him the whole of the whole, the standard of everything. Make him your life. Otherwise, he's still only part of your life. Is Jesus the whole of your life or just a part of your life? Colossians chapter 3, verse 4, Paul says, 
when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. He says, when Christ, who is your life. Not just a part of your life. Jesus doesn't just merely want to be a part of our lives. He wants our lives to be about him. He is your life if you are in him. He is your life. He's in my life. He's in all of our lives. Father, it's a hard thing sometimes to comprehend. To know whether or not we're walking in the right direction. And sometimes we do have struggle. We have a struggle to, to, to move in in into the center of your life. We struggle with the things that we have in our lives. We're afraid. But God, we want to pray and, and ask that you work in our hearts in a, in a powerful way. And we ask that you change our hearts. You make us able. You take us from this one place into the next. Lord, may we trust you. May we put our full faith in you. And Father, may we look forward to what you have for us. All glory and honor and praise be yours. In Jesus' name, amen. And I want to bring this up over and over again. Love God. <laughs> We're not quite there yet. Is it there? Oh, there, okay. <laughs> love God, love people, and do something. I was thinking of what I had up last week, and it uh, looked different. But love God, love people, and do something. <laughs>